This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey y'all, what's up? This is Pints of Perspectives. So, uh, Colin, what you drinking? Uh, I'm excited. We're actually drinking uh, from the same brewery tonight. We're trying out a a new brewery, uh, an American Trappist Brewery in Massachusetts. And I'm... if. I I might be wrong, but I'm like 99% sure that they're the only Trappist brewery in America. Um, true, true, Trappist. true Trappist brewery in America. So, so if you don't know, uh, a Trappist brewery is uh, a brewery by monks. Mm-hmm. And so monks, you know, the home people. <laughs> Uh, not like that. <laughs> they're not actually like that, but that's the stereotype that everybody yeah. makes of them. But no, they're they're dedicated, devout Christians. They're mm. they're prayer warriors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they devote themselves to a life of faith, but they also have to make money. So one of the ways that they do that is through gardening and brewing beer. Yeah, um, it's really prominent overseas in Europe. It's yeah, a big- so so you lived in Belgium for yeah. almost a year. Yeah. And they have, they're like, they it's, have, well, they're the like brewing capital per capita of the world. Of the world, yeah. And, and a large portion of that actually comes from uh, Trappist. From Trappist breweries and, yeah. and, and monasteries. Um, and what you'll actually find is because these monks are so cool um, and they don't like waste, they will also end up distilling some of what they have left over. Oh, really? And they'll be making whiskey out of the beer. So I hadn't heard that one. I know that they will also take some of their leftover grains and make bread. Oh, yeah, they'll do that too. Uh, but I hadn't heard that they will S- distill. Some of them will distill it. And I've had some of it, the the Krolis. Uh, oh, okay. That 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 is that. And it is incredible. Interesting. Anyways. So. Yeah, so we're, we're both drinking from the same brewery tonight. I... I'm a hophead, so I have an IPA. That's my go-to beer. And, and Clayton has a stout. That is really freaking good. Yeah. Um, it's chocolatey. And, oh. Yeah, we're really impressed with uh, this brewery. We, we may be, um, we've already been talking about it. We may be taking some uh, spiritual retreats to the monastery uh, to experience it in its fullness. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, cheers, man. Cheers. Oh, good God. Oh, yeah. That is so good. I'm like 90% sure. I know I've said this before for another beer, but I'm pretty sure this is what the beer would taste like in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, last week, we talked about the God part of the Nicene Creed. Yeah. This week, so we've got two episodes on the Jesus part. Yeah, so the Creed is... um, it, t- it has more lines dedicated to Jesus than it does any of the other right. persons of the Godhead. Um, and so it's going to take us a couple episodes to get through yeah. uh, just because it's pretty important. But we're going to start the Jesus part. Yeah. So Jesus part one. Yep. So uh, where are we headed with this? What, what What's going on? Yeah. So... Um, the Nicene Creed, if you don't know, is is our church, Wellhouse Church's statement of faith. 
uh, along with the Apostles' Creed. And so we just wanted to go through it and dive into every element of it so that people know what we believe. It's also been established as foundational orthodoxy. Yeah. And so anyone who is a Christian believes this. Um, and so we just wanted to go through it and break it down because actually, unfortunately, even though it is the foundation of Christianity, uh, most of the expressions of Christianity don't refer to it, utilize it, and to some extent, don't even know that it exists. And yeah, that's a real problem because these are the essentials of our faith. Yeah. So go back and listen to episode one if you've missed it, but that's where we detail what essentials and non-essentials are. Yeah. The the Nicene Creed are essential beliefs. Yeah. Not your denominational position. No. Those are not essential. Those have essentials. They also have non-essentials. Right. I know um, an expression that we're very close to and familiar with is the Assemblies of God. And in their statement of faith, uh, I was actually just talking to someone and they went, so they have 16 what they call fundamental truths, but then they took it a step further and said, we have four core beliefs Mm. from them. And one of their core beliefs is the premillennial rapture. Yeah. Like premillennial pre-trib rapture of the church. That is not an essential belief. No. Like, so your denomination, your expression may have a statement of faith. It has essentials and non-essentials. Yeah. These in the Nicene Creed are only essentials. These yeah. are the defining essentials of the faith. Yeah. And so the first line of the Jesus part, this is line five of the creed says, and like, and we believe Coming out of the God part. Right, coming out of the God part. In one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I think there's a few things that are important there. One Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, there are a few things I get to break down here for you. Lord, Clayton, what does Lord mean? I mean, it depends on where you come from. It can mean a bunch of different things. What's the biblical expression of Lord? Uh, Okay, I guess you're going to have to break this down for me because I guess I don't know. Well, a slave calls a master. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Someone you submit authority to. Fair enough. Meaning that what he says goes. Mm -hmm. He is our one Lord. So he holds authority. He sits above. Yep. Hands down. That is who he is. Um, but then we get his name, his earthly name, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now this also gives me uh, a time to do some myth busters here. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> yes. It's an epithet. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't know what an epithet is, it's a literary device to explain the role or title of a person. And so we should really be ex- we should really be translating this, especially since this is how it's actually original to the text. Jesus, comma the Christ. Right. So let's do a, a bit more MythBusters here. Okay. Because um, I just realized that I don't know if this is true. Um, 
but I've also been taught Guys, I'm I don't have a theology degree. Don't <laughs> I don't know things. Yeah, I'm the only one that was stupid with our money and went to school for theology. Yeah, I, I don't know things. He does. But what I was taught was that Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ and that Christ is the Hebrew word for Messiah. Is that true? Uh at least in role. Yeah. So they they both mean essentially they mean anointed one. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, yes, they, okay. they function in the same regard and they are translated the same way. Mm-hmm. What we have here is when we see Messiah in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's what's called a transliteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we see Christ in the New Testament, it's a transliteration. And what that means is a translation would be to say that this word means... X word means Y in new language. Okay. Okay. So it would be like uh, uno and dos. Or I'm sorry. Uno and one. (laughs) Uno and one. Yes. Yeah. Um, A transliteration would be, I'm going to make up what this word is in sound and replace the letters in the new language Mm. and create a new word. Okay. So Messiah is a transliteration it's just a new makeup of the hebrew word or the hebrew letters for the word that is translated anointed okay in the same way i'm sorry my hebrew is not great i think it's meshua uh, or meshuach actually how you would say it um but my greek is much better and the word is christos right in the nominative form and so Jesus is the Christ, okay, uh, which is a transliteration. So, but Christos means anointed, okay. Like that's what it means. So in that regard, yes, they they are, but they're they're meaning anointed. Christ is not a translation of the word Messiah. Okay, so they they just function in the same way. Yeah, they're they're the same word. Functionally, they represent the same title, okay. Uh, which is the anointed one, right? And so, this is best detailed out in Isaiah 61 uh, in the Old Testament. And Jesus kind of brings that to the forefront of how we should interpret him in Luke chapter 4 when he stands in the synagogue before his hometown and reads from the scroll of Isaiah and reads Isaiah 61, right? And, and, and some translations of scripture actually use the term. The anointed one. Yeah, so the voice Bible is a good example of that. Yeah. They were intentional about doing that. Yeah, that's super cool, right? If, if you just strip it down to what the word really means, which is anointed or anointed one. Right. right. That That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so I, I think all of those are, are very important notes, that, that Jesus is Lord. He has authority. He's Jesus, the human person, and he's Christ. He's the anointed one to bring restoration and salvation to the world. But the second part, the second clause of the Jesus section is also equally important. And the only son of God. Right. This is important because Jesus is a man that lived on earth from approximately the year 4 BC to the year 29 AD. That person has a beginning state. 
Yeah. Who was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, before he was incarnate in Jesus? Mm. The pre-existent Son of God. Yeah. He is pre-existent. This is John 1. Mm. Right? This the word is was with God. Yeah. This is John 1. In the beginning, the word was with God. The word was God. Yeah. Um, this is also Genesis 1. Uh, 17 and 18, let us, mm. first person plural, yeah. make humanity in our, yeah. first person plural, image. Yeah, Like, Jesus is there in that moment. That's what John 1 is functionally doing for us, is it, put is placing him there. It, it's, uh, the, the Bible Project calls that a hyperlink. Like, when you see this, you go back. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. So, uh, for any of my other theology nerds or friends... Uh, that are also listening, we would call this an echo uh, from the work of Richard Hayes, but the Bible Project would call this a hyperlink. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, excuse me, I think that's another important element is that the person that you know is Jesus, um, the Son of God exists outside of the Hebrew man named Jesus. Right. He's indwelled in that person, but he exists outside of that human form. Yeah. He is the son of God. The baptism of Jesus, right? The, right. the voice comes from, this is my beloved son. Like he exists outside of the human body. So this presents an issue for me. Uh, and I'm just curious what you think. Does that mean that um, we should stop referring to ourselves as... Um, sons and daughters of God? No. Okay. You should not. Um, I want to be careful because you're going to lead me down a road for another episode I have planned. Okay. But Psalm 82 uh, has a reference that you are all sons of the Most High. Mm. Psalm 82, 6. And Jesus quotes that in John ten thirty four, okay, that does you does the book not say that we are sons of God, sons of the Most High? Okay, um, it's another episode that we're going to talk about uh, when we get to our soteriology or our study of salvation series. So I don't want to go too much into it, but no, we shouldn't get rid of that. Uh, to another extent what you're talking about is another element of the Christian metaphor right. where we call people brothers, brother, and, brother sister. and sister, Yeah, yeah, yeah. because we are the family of God. Right. And so if we are the family of God, then we, you know, God, the father, right. It's like, yeah. it's it, a part of another metaphor. So no, you shouldn't because of that metaphor, but also no, theologically you don't have to because we are called sons of God. Okay. Okay. So, but we are not pre-existent. Right. That, that would be the difference that, That's the there. distinction. This is the pre-existent son of God, a triune part of the Trinity, which we are not. Okay. So, so this is, goes into verse or line three of the Jesus part, begotten from the father before all ages. This continues our theme with John one here, but he is preexistent before all ages. There, there knows no time that the Son of God did not exist. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know if anyone believed this or didn't know beforehand. Jesus was, bef- he knew things he had being before he popped out of Mary. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so, and, and that's basically what that's saying, right? He is before, he is God, right? Yeah. And we talked about this in the Trinity episode that um, there are three parts to one being. Yeah. Um, which you got to be careful with, which we talked yeah. about in that episode. Three, three persons of one essence. Right. But differ in substance. Right. And Jesus is one of those. Yep. And therefore he well, has. Well, the son of God. Right. Is one of them that then becomes manifest in the person Jesus. Right, yeah. correct. Um, so, therefore, he would have to be eternal. Yeah, for sure. Okay. If he is God or a person of the Godhead, he must eternally exist. Okay. Yep, for right. sure. So, and this goes on. God from God, light from light, True God from true God. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's like it details it out exactly what um, we would think. And specifically, the God from God part is pretty self-explanatory. But the light from light part has a bit of euphemism or echo or metaphor in it. But God speaks light into existence. Right. This is a way to say that he's present in creation. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, they, they go on to detail it out a bit more uh, in the creed, but like it's it's a reference back that when, when we first see light in the Bible, like Jesus, Jesus is there. there. Um, and true God from true God is important just to say, that's a way to say that, it, it's one God, not many gods. Right. So. It, it's not polytheism. Right. And then this is important as well, that he's begotten, not made. Um, well, let me ask you, what do you think the difference would be there? Yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, I've always heard that word begotten, right? But I... I have no idea what makes the difference. So what do you make? Food, um, cocktails, things that you do with your hands. You know, you, you make, um, uh, things. I don't like <laughs> things. You make things that are finite. Yeah. Okay. Even God made something that was finite. Okay. Right. We're told, and Paul, that the earth will pass away, right? Like right. there are things that when things are made, they are finite. Okay. But when something is begotten, it's indwelled with life. Mm. And when, when God begets something, it's life eternal. Oh, okay. It's not made. It's not finite. It doesn't have an end date. Like it is eternal. It is begotten. It is of the same substance uh, or it is of the same essence of God. Fair like enough. when you make something, you make something, you make something outside of yourself. Mm. So when, when we think about, you know, the DIY community is big right now, but 
you think about makers who make things, they make things with wood. Right. They make things with a substance outside of themselves. But when we begat something, it's just like us. Right. It's a part of us. So to say that Jesus is begotten, not made, is important to the understanding of how he fits within the, the Trinity, that, that it's a statement of who Jesus is, that he is like God. He is of God. I see. Okay. So it, it goes back to that uh, God of God. Yep. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, and this details out in final statement of the same essence as the Father. So this is important uh, for us to understand. We say that they're of the same essence, meaning that they're the same being, that they are themselves one. But we can't say that they're the same substance. They're not made up of the same thing in that way because Jesus takes on the form of a man and the Holy Spirit indwells humanity. So they don't function in the same way, right? Their substance is not the same. Jesus is an actual person. Right. Um, but their essence, who they are, their identity is one. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so... What you got to know basically here is that the the claim is that he is of the same essence as the father. Mm -hmm. That like who you make up about the father is in the son of God. Okay. Now, when we read Philippians 2, there's an element that Jesus gives some of that up in voluntary acts of humanity and steps into humanity. Right. Now, that's not to say that he gives up any attribute of being God, or it's not to say that he gives up any part of being God, just some characteristics of being God, like all knowledge, all powerful, right? Those types of things. Like being in eternity and outside of, you know, being outside of time and space. Yeah. Yeah. Like all, all of that is in, in what Jesus quote unquote, gives up or relinquishes yeah. um, in this, but he's still God. Right. Um, okay. And so then it says, through him, all things were made. That's important to place Jesus or the son of God in creation. Number one, because we have, um, First-person plural language there. Let us, this plurality, make humanity in our our image and likeness. So it's important that, to some extent, we have to place um, a multiplicity of creative agents there. Yeah. Um, But to another point, this is John 1. Is through him and for him, all things were made, and he sustains all things. Right. What's the the reference for that scripture? Uh, um, I think it's John one fourteen. Uh, not that one. Um, it's in, I should know this. It's in my email. Uh, uh, Romans eleven thirty six. For f- 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Um, and, and so it's also kind of a, a hit to that, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it is to say that Jesus is involved in creation. Right. Um, oh, well, we got time. We're going to keep on going. Uh, you um, want to keep going? Yeah, let's keep on going. For us and for our salvation. I think that's important. Now, this gets into a little bit of the debate about did God know that Adam and Eve were going to sin or did God will that they were going to sin? I think those are big differentiations in how you make up God. Right. Um, and that's for another episode. Um, but to some extent, you have to know that God... God's not shocked that Adam and Eve sin. Uh, so there's this expression of Christianity called open theism or process theology. Uh, I guess process theology would be the final fulfillment of liberal Protestantism. But open theism is this idea that God enters into space and time with us fully. And so he doesn't know what's going to happen. Mm. That's heretical. Don't go there. Um, to the extent that we can understand space and time, God had to, at the very least, have known that Adam and Eve were going to sin. At the most extreme, he caused them to sin or willed them to sin. Right. Um, so knowing that, that when they're creating... If they are truly, they, the Godhead, are all-knowing, then Jesus is for us and for our salvation. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting into cross language. We're getting right. into resurrection language. It says, he came down from heaven, right? He, he comes down. This is Philippians 2 again, right? Doesn't count equality with God, something to be grasped or exploited, and lowers himself down or empties himself and joins us here in humanity. Right. That's what that's saying. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. This is probably where the episode will end after we go through this, because this will take some time. But I know you've all been patiently nipping at the front of your seat waiting for this moment. Yeah, so if, if you didn't catch this... Um, in one of our earlier episodes, Cullen made a comment that um, the virgin birth that we see in the Gospels it wasn't the first one. Um, At least not the first one recorded in the scriptures. Right. Um, I had my mind blown a bit. Um, and so we're, we're actually going to talk about that probably next week. No, we're going to talk about it right now. Oh, you want then, to right now. And then we'll carry out... Uh, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate beginning next week. All right. So this is the, the moment we've all been waiting for, including yeah. myself. So he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Okay. So we are told in the story in Luke that uh, in the birth narrative that it's the Holy Spirit that conceives Jesus in Mary. Right. 
I think that's partially, that's really important because you got to have some element of divinity in the creation, right? Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. Right. So you got to have a divine piece of it in the creation. But the divine piece is not that she's a virgin. Like, I I want to be clear about that. That's not the divine piece. The divine Mm. piece is that she's conceived of the Holy Spirit. God did another miracle in the Old Testament where he had someone prophesy that a virgin would give birth and it would mark something that happened in time and space. Mm. So that, but that doesn't make that person God. Right. Because there's no, there's no mention that that one is conceived of the Holy Spirit. We don't even know who it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pull my Bible out. But if you want to know about this, this is in Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read you this. And if you have a study Bible, uh, this is going to, like, this is the text that they're going to reference as the prophecy for Jesus. Okay? But. I'm going to read I'm going to read 9 verses to you so bear with me here. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, king Pekah, son of <laughs> All of those things are actually yeah, important. They are, but for the sake of pints and perspectives, I'm going to skip them. Uh of Israel went up to attack Jerusalem but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the setting is that there's a coming battle. There's a battle ensuing. In verse 3 of Isaiah 6, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Sherah, Jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him take heed be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king in it. So that's their plan. People rising up against Judah and Jerusalem to take it over for the purpose of cutting it off. Like, that's, that's what the plan is. That's, that's what we've been told. And, and if you're having trouble following the reading, um, we will put it in the in the notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the notes, or we'll put the reference to it in the notes. Yeah, um, that that's what we'll probably do is we'll put yeah, the reference. But to this it. is Isaiah seven, one through nine. Yeah. Um, and so, but the plan is that these um, these two regimes or these two countries, these two elements of people, are rising up to take over Judah or overtake Judah and Jerusalem. Right. Picking up in verse seven, therefore, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Aram is Damascus 
and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Okay? So that's the setting. God says, it's not going to happen. Picking up in verse 10, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. <coughs> then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For, this is verse 16, for before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and your people and your ancestral house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That was a temporal moment in time and space where God used the birth of a virgin as declaration that the nation of Israel would be saved from two coming kings and attacks. Okay, so it was just a sign that happened that God used. Then we see it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's important that you got to understand is in prophecy, you judged a prophet on his effectiveness based on whether or not something came true. Like if they predicted something, you only knew if they were a true prophet, if it came true or not. So when Isaiah prophesies that there's going to be a a virgin born, and by the time that he like concurred, like this won't you won't even be talking about these because that land will be deserted. Like I'm going to wipe them out. They're not going to overtake Jerusalem. They're not going to overtake Judah. Well, that never happened. Like they never overtook Jerusalem. So like that prophecy is fulfilled. But when it's fulfilled in Jesus, it's no longer limited in time and space to the the person of Isaiah and the people of Israel. It's now a declaration of I'm overcoming the kingdom of darkness. I wish I remembered which one of these buttons was the wah, wah, wah. <laughs> there it is. Because it's so hard for me to process. Yeah, well, because you never heard it before, and you and truthfully, we don't understand how prophecy works. No, it, it, it's just it's so hard for for me to process this because it's so outside of what you've been taught. Yeah, um, and, and as you're reading that, I'm like, yeah, that's that's Christological narrative, right? Yeah, uh, but but put yourself as like 
a Jew, yeah, BC. That like that's what I'm trying to do, and and I put myself there, right? And well, this maybe this Isaiah guy is not really all that he's <laughs> cracked up to be because you know a virgin never gave birth. Yeah, right. But the the point that that came to my mind to to counter that is what if God is just like saying like no he is a real prophet and all you people all you people with finite minds aren't seeing the full picture well, right god's I mean, the one that set the standard judging them based on whether or not it comes true i mean that's fair but then it, it goes i mean if you go forward in isaiah we have this idea that um in isaiah 55 right god is above yeah right so this is so this is called uh multiple fulfillment of prophecy and as i said you can have multiple fulfillments of a single prophecy um but they must increase in scale so this is limited this is a prophecy that fulfills the protection of the people of israel when it's fulfilled in jesus it's now a protection of the world from the kingdom of darkness um and so another way that we could look at this, and this is, I understand that this is not, for any Bible nerds out there, this is not 100%, but maybe for our listeners, the better way to explain this would be through a form of typology. Mm. And so what typology is, is we see it in, I guess maybe most prominently in Paul. In Romans 5 through 7, you have this language here, uh, we call it the participationist piece of that that letter, and in chapter seven, you have that Adam. You know, we we experience death in Adam, yeah, but then we have the new Adam, right, where we experience life, and that's in Christ. Yeah, that's typology, right? When Jesus, uh, in Matthew, finds himself constantly on mountains. It's because he's a type of Moses mm. because Moses encountered God on the mountain. And so the transfiguration in Matthew, that's because Jesus is the new type of Moses. Um, so maybe that's a way you should think about it. Mm. It's not a hundred percent true typology and multiple fulfillment are not exactly the same thing. Um, so like to my theology nerds out there, I understand that. Like I'm not I'm not ignorant to that fact. But for simplicity's sake here and trying to explain a complex theological element, maybe that's one that people are more familiar familiar with that we should bring them into. And so I, I want to bring that up because um to some extent that's that's why the Catholics are so keen on Mary. It's because mm. she she's the virgin that gives birth. Right. Like it's not unique to the narrative. Right. Like that's happened before. The part of it is though, is Mary's called a Parthenon in Greek. And that's important because a Parthenon, it had a few different translations um, because you could be called a Parthenon. That was a young girl who was pure, meaning that, you were a young girl and you were pure in your outlook upon life. Um, you were pure, but you weren't sexually pure. 
Mm. You had been abused. You'd been raped. Like you'd been molested. Something had happened to you uh, that prevented you from being truly a virgin, but you were still declared a virgin. Or you could just be a virgin. Mm. Mary's called a Parthenon. Like she's a virgin um, in this regard. That's the only way that we have a declaration for virginity is in this word Parthenon. Mary is a Parthenon and she's not yet married. Right. So let's take yourself out of your modern mind here for a second. Um, how old do you think Mary is? She'd be somewhere around 12, 13, right? It's exactly about how old she'd be. Yeah. She'd be somewhere around 12, 13. She's not married yet. She's engaged to Joseph. Right. Like, she's 12 or 13 years old. Like, yeah. she's a virgin. So the point of all of this part about the virgin birth and Parthenon is all of this is to say that um, the virgin birth is not unique. So, like, that, God used that as a way in the past. Um, but it is to say that it's important and it's been important for a few different reasons throughout Christian history. Uh, and I know we're getting like to the 45 minute mark and I want to be conscientious of our time here. But, uh, if you've been around reform traditions for very long, you've heard that the virgin birth and conceive and being conceived of the Holy Spirit's important for Jesus to not be born with original sin because the sins of the father are passed down. Right. right. So sin is carried in the seed of the father uh, or the semen, if we're not using biblical euphemisms. Augustine thought that. Augustine thought that it was vital that Jesus not have an earthly father or he would have been born with original sin and therefore tainting godness. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a problem with Augustine's theology in that because it's not that God can't be around sin. If God couldn't be around sin, the Holy Spirit couldn't indwell his people. The fact of the matter is, sin can't be around God. When we reach the element of judgment, you must be clothed in righteousness because sin cannot be around God. It's not that God can't be around sin. So don't think that's it. I literally think we should think about this as um, a virgin being that she has not been tainted in any capacity from sexual intimacy. There's no way that she could have contributed biologically. You should more think of Mary as a surrogate right, rather than a biologically contributing party. She's more of a surrogate for something that's been implanted to her that's divinely and uniquely made and the next line of the creed was made human. Like it, it is something unique to the Holy Spirit that Mary becomes a surrogate of rather than her actively participating an element of Jesus' humanity. Wow. Um, I'm probably going to have to go back and re-listen to this several times um, before I can fully wrap my head around that. You guys listening, um, y'all are experiencing something that's happening with me right now 
this is what we call deconstruction. Mm, yeah. This is where you take the things that you've always been taught. You know, you sat in Sunday school, right? Um, you, you saw it on these pictures, like these little animated pictures, right? Um, those aren't always the most accurate. Um, those things that you were taught aren't always the most accurate. Yeah. Um, and so sitting here right now, hearing all of this, I'm going through my own deconstruction. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you listening are doing the same thing, if not most of you. Yeah, well, since since you brought up deconstruction, let me add to it a little bit. Because she is chosen for the purpose of surrogacy, I also think we need to reimagine her role in the church. Mm. I don't know that we should go to the level of extreme that the Catholics have gone um, in worshiping her, but we give Abraham a whole lot of appreciation. Mm-hmm. We give Isaac a whole lot of appreciation. We give Jacob a whole lot of appreciation as fathers of the church. Isaiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Paul. We give people a whole lot of appreciation in their for their role and participation in the church and leading us to the narrative of Jesus. Yeah. We never get him without Mary's part. For sure. Um we should rethink about how we deal with Mary in our Protestant expressions. And earlier this week, we released an episode, or yesterday, actually, we released an episode of um, Practicing Presence, where we talked about the traditional, the, the traditionalist um, yeah. and, and the, the idea of symbols and relics. Um, if you haven't listened, go, go listen, go to, listen it. to it. At one point... Um, in, in your um, theological history. Um, I know you've been through lots of deconstruction and, and working through it's lots of different It's still going through, to yeah. some extent. Um, working through lots of different theological ideas. But at one point, you described Mary to me as a walking relic um, because she was touched by the power of God. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a great thing that a great way to think about it Um, yeah i think so um she is uniquely chosen for divine purpose yeah um that is unique yeah while she may not have been the first virgin to ever give birth she's the first and only person to ever give birth to the son of god yeah that's incredible we should not miss that in in her role and part in salvation history. And to some extent, I blame it on the New Testament authors. Mm. The New Testament authors don't do a good job of incorporating Mary. Hebrews 11, by faith, all these massive giants of the faith, and Mary's left out. Mm. Wow. That actually just challenged something else that we need to talk about in a later episode. But yeah, like I, I think partly it's because women are devalued in a patriarch, patriarchal Roman Greek society. So Mary is devalued. Mm. But like her role in salvation history may be arguably the most important. Wow. Yeah. So uh, you got anything else? 
No, join next week because we're going to get into the crucifixion part of the the creed. Yeah, but, that's exciting. But yeah, I um, think if if you're here and you're experiencing a bit of deconstruction, wrestle through it, read your Bible, um, and and don't be afraid of deconstruction. No, don't like. Be. I think we have done a disservice to people because we haven't given them the space to safely deconstruct and ask questions. Yeah. We are that resource for you. If you are struggling, you can personally email me. I will put it out for everyone right now. Wellhouse.cullen at gmail.com. We are talking about essentials right now. And I think it's important to, to also note and correct me if you disagree. The fact that Mary is not the only virgin to give birth, if whether or not you agree with that, is not an essential. No, you have to agree that she's the virgin that gave birth to the Son of God. Yes. You don't have to believe that she's the only virgin right. to give so birth. If you're, if that's what you're deconstructing, if that's what you're having a problem with, like I am, you're that doesn't d- exclude you from being a Christian. No. Um, you just have to fundamentally believe in the virgin birth. Yeah, I um, think so. Okay, so now that we've made that point, don't be afraid of deconstruction. Reach out to us if you need to talk about it. Um, but this has been a, a heavier episode than we really like to have with Pines and Perspectives. Typically, um, well, the first part wasn't, just this last part. Yeah, th- this last part has been a bit heavy. Yeah. So, um, um, I'm trying to think of a way to lighten it up, but I don't really know how. And I guess in saying that, I kind of lighten it up a bit. A little bit. Um, seriously, guys, um, this is one of our favorite podcasts to do. We really hope y'all are enjoying it. Um, keep trucking along. Come back next week for um, for the crucifixion part. All right. Thanks. Thanks.